Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Rabbi Dr. Mark Shapiro. Rabbi Shapiro holds the Weinberg Chair in Judaic Studies at the University of Scranton. A graduate of Brandeis and Harvard, he is the author of numerous books, articles, and reviews, and is a popular scholar in residence at synagogues around the world. He has written Between the Yeshiva World and Modern Orthodoxy and the Limits of Orthodox Theology, both of which were National Jewish Book Award finalists. Other books of his include Saul Lieberman and the Orthodox, Studies in Maimonides and His Interpreters, and Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History. In 2019, he published Igrot Malchei Rabbanan, which contains more than 30 years of correspondence with some of the world's most outstanding Torah scholars. He regularly publishes widely read scholarly articles on the Sfarim blog, and is currently writing a book on the thought of Rav Kook. Dr. Shapiro leads a number of the Torah in Motion Jewish history trips. His appearances on the Chabura and Torah in Motion are a must-watch. Without further ado, Rabbi Dr. Mark Shapiro. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. We are honored to have Rabbi Dr. Mark Shapiro on the podcast. And before we begin, we would like our audience to know a little bit about you. So if you can, please give us just a brief about who you are. Okay, thank you. A pleasure, honor to be here. I uh, grew up uh, most of my life in New Jersey, had a uh, typical uh, modern Orthodox education in uh, day school and high school, uh, studied in Israel. Then uh, my BA is from Brandeis. My PhD is from Harvard. I was uh, Professor Isidore Yitzhak Torsky's, actually his last PhD student that he saw to completion the doctorate. Uh, along the way, I uh, also uh, studied uh, some with Rosolovechik in the summer. I got Smicha from Ephraim Greenblatt. I worked as a rabbi for a few years. So uh, I've done a, a number of different things, but my main job is... Uh, work at the University of Scranton, a professor in the religion department. And uh, in summers, I do I lead Jewish history tours and uh, try to write and uh, keep my voice out there. I guess uh, that's uh, that's enough to say, I think, about me. Yeah, and you're, uh, you have excellent shiurim on the Chabura. Um, I do want to plug some of your books, um, Changing the Immutable, um, Limits, that, of, Orthodox. Limits of Orthodox Theology, um, among others that we're very, you know, well-versed in. And, you know, we also want to recommend the audience listen to your um, new series on the reform movement, uh, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight. We kind of want to, you know, emphasize this because it's fascinating. It's, it really, it's really, really interesting. And I think a lot of people just dismiss the reform movement offhand without actually studying the history. So we want to kind of get to know you know what it is that you're going to be dis you are discussing on your series. So first, I want to just discuss the origins of the first generation of the reform movement. Uh, what what was Gershom Sholem's thesis on this, and what are your thoughts on his thesis? Okay, um, two separate things. First of all, while you speak about reform, what uh, Sholem is speaking about uh, is right at the beginning. Like, why did the reform happen? And where did it come from? Did it just come out of the blue? And Sholem, he saw really Sabatianism and everything, or uh, he <laughs> tried to uncover it. And he makes the claim that there was a connection, not just between the early reform, but also Haskalah, early Haskalah, 
and uh, Sabatianism. Uh, his argument basically is that, well, first he tries to actually make some connections, actually physical connections between people, uh, Sabatians and uh, early Haskalah. But the basic argument is that uh, Sabatianism, it's antinomianism, that is uh, the idea that the Jewish law is not binding, you know, the whole Sabatian idea, we're entering into a new era, that that really set the stage for a questioning of the um, the binding nature of halacha, and really allowed for um, reform to um, take root, I guess you could say, in the uh, in the Jewish community, because um, ideas about uh, Jewish law, Sabbatian type of ideas, had already filtered in. I guess you could say the best way to put it. Uh, others have said Sholem, as far as I know, did not say this that. Uh, um, it's also due, Sabatianism had an influence in another way, the great disputes, the Emdenayvish's dispute, that led to such a uh, degeneration in, in the eyes of the people of the rabbis, because they're killing each other, attacking each other, and uh, with the lack of respect in the rabbinic class, that opened up the doors to possibilities of uh, new approaches, new rabbis. Uh, in terms of Sholem's point, um, um, the second point, which Sholem, as far as I know, does not make, uh, it, it probably has some validity. The first point, I think scholars have basically rejected this. Uh, there really doesn't seem to be any evidence about the individual connections. And if I could say, from my own perspective, uh, you always have to ask yourself, you know, what if? So what if there never was a Sabatian movement? Do we really think that the reform movement wouldn't have developed? That uh, the, in, in modern times, all you have to do is look at the other, Judy, you have to look at Christianity, you see, they had a reform movement as well. It's hard to imagine that by the 18th century, when there's an enlightenment out there in Europe and where Jews are being welcomed to a limited extent, to uh, participate in general culture, that there's another, when there's another option out there, it isn't just Judaism or Christianity, you have this middle ground that you can, you can be Jewish and Christian and meet in the middle ground, the neutral space, that uh, Jews would have remained committed to halacha. Even without, a ref even without um, uh, Sabbatianism, uh, the idea that there wouldn't have arisen a reform movement, it, it, I, I see it as uh, incomprehensible, his position, because certainly there would have arisen a reform movement. Now, why would it have been? Because Jews would have rejected Jewish law. There's no question that with modernity, many Jews would have felt that uh, we don't want to be uh, you know, bound to these uh, archaic laws. And at the same time, you would have had people who have arisen who said, well, uh, does that mean we're going to lose these Jews entirely? No, we want to offer them another form of Judaism, one that you can still remain Jewish. Because remember, the early reformers were not converting. They were not becoming apostates. They wanted to remain Jewish, and they suffered to be for remaining Jewish. If they would have become Christian, the whole world would have been open to them. But they remained Jewish. So you see they had a certain amount of pride in their Judaism, but they didn't want their Judaism to be understood as just through halacha. Now, where did they get these ideas? Well, if, if you're living in Germany in the 18th century, enlightened opinion is, is talking about how organized religion doesn't make sense. You know, uh, ideas of miracles, obligations, and you had the exact same thing going on in the Christian world. Uh, so it makes sense that those Jews who wanted to leave the confines of the ghetto given the opportunity, you didn't have a Torim Derech Heretz of Shamshim Rafa Hirsch. You had the choice either to be part of greater German society, enlightened society, or living like a, a ghetto sort of existence. And uh, 
uh, the idea that you're going to go to university and still follow halacha, that, that, that option wasn't available. So uh, I think that uh, we have to conclude that um, that Shalom's argument is questionable. I don't even know if you can make the case that Sabatianism sped up the movement uh, towards uh, reform. It appears to me, at least from how I see it, that this is some, something completely independent with no relationship whatsoever. It's, it's really response to uh, what's going on in an enlightened German society or in English society, because there was reform movement in England also people forget about. Yeah, you know, people also make the, make the same kind of connection with Maimonideanism, you know, leading to uh, enlightenment or or Kabbalah. I've heard many theories, but I'm curious to know what you you lightly touched on um, the the Rav Yaakov Emdin and Rav Yonatan Abishit's controversy. How does he make that connection there? He's just saying that that they're that well, they're. Yeah, I'm saying that I don't I don't recall him actually speaking about. I, he might say it, but many others have made the point. Uh, maybe that's why he felt he didn't need to, that the breakdown, of, I think Gretz makes the point even, uh, that the breakdown of rabbinic authority because of the dispute, look, everyone was in Cheyrim, the uh, Emden forces were putting them in Cheyrim and vice versa, and if you're a layperson and you're looking, and these these are our Godolvi, these are our great rabbis, and they're attacking one another like that, it can only lead to a decline of their uh, prestige in people's eyes, and uh, that the argument is made that's what led to the opening for Haskalah, because uh, look, if, if this is who our rabbis are, uh, we're not we're not going to be you know like you know people sophisticated people people with sensitivity they're going to see a problem with this and uh, they're going to be inclined to move in a different direction if offered. So the the claim is made that, uh, and I think there is validity to this. That the rabbis in the uh, 18th century, remember the Haskalah, the movement away from uh, traditional Judaism, really comes very shortly after these great disputes. And it isn't just Emden Ipschitz. This tore apart all of German Jewry. Uh, the Pnei Yeshua, people don't realize this. Rav uh, uh, Falk, uh, the great Pnei Yeshua, was also on Rav Yaakov Emden's side. Uh, and uh, many other Gedolim were on it. Today, people assume it's just Rav Yaakov Emden, but it's not the case at all. And uh, whatever show you went to, you sort of uh, were involved in some in this dispute to a certain extent. Uh, the big shows in the cities, I'm saying. Mm. Who, who are some of the uh, figures that really began the movement? Like who, who are the, the reform like, movement? Yes, the, the the first generation. How did it like? Okay. Who, who I'm, the first people. To... I'm, when I speak about the reform, I'm not speaking now about let's say students of Mendelssohn, who just uh, gave up uh, religion traditional Judaism and uh, either adopted some sort of universal religion or no religion. Now, I'm talking about people who actually advocated uh, a, a new type of uh, Judaism. And um, I mean, you had uh, community of David Friedlander. You had you had uh, you had a whole you had community in Berlin and Hamburg, basically groups of Jews. And um, they found certain rabbis who uh, were willing to lead them. Um, so, for instance, there was a man named Eliezer Lieberman. We don't know that much. Uh, for, oh, before I go on, your readers, full treatments of this can be found in this book by Michael Meyer. What I tried, it's called Response to Modernity, or History of the Reform Movement in Judaism. What I tried to do in the series is do some things which haven't really had much uh, discussion, namely... Uh, the rabbinic role. I'm not the, I mean, you know, traditional rabbis, their involvement of it, like he speaks about in Westphalia, uh, you had things going on, you had in, 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 in Berlin, in Hamburg, 
Um, there was a movement of lay people first. It starts from the lay people uh, that um, they want a different type of synagogue service. No one is saying to get rid of the Sabbath. How many? How much these people observe the Sabbath? It's hard to imagine that there were any real Sabbath observers the way we think of it. But they still they wanted to go to the synagogue, and some of the things they wanted were uh, you'd be surprised in form. They wanted sermons in the vernacular. Sort of like we get every week in our synagogues. Everything was in Yiddish. They wanted it, however, in, in German. They wanted music. Something that our synagogues all have. It's music, singing of the sort we have, by the way, is not a traditional Jewish thing either. But they're not even referring to that. They're referring to music like of a cantor and a choir and an even musical instrument, the organ. The organ was considered very important. Of course, can you play an organ on Shabbos? We'll get into that uh, as well. Um, so th they wanted decorum. They wanted aesthetics. Uh, they they think of the shtibel. If you know what a shtibel is, they wanted a different, uh, and even if it's not a shtibel, they had big synagogues in Germany, but you didn't have decorum. You didn't have... Um, we have descriptions, by the way, of non-Jews who came to the synagogue. And look, when you when you feel comfortable in a synagogue, uh, uh, maybe you don't treat it the way you're supposed to have it. Uh, they wanted to get rid of piyutim. Look in our synagogue. I can speak for the Ashkenazim. My synagogue doesn't have any of the piyutim. Uh, what happened to them all? They they got rid of them. So I guess we're reform also. One of the ironies is that a number of the reforms. He's been advocating. Uh, well, a number of the reforms. <laughs> Are now considered basic uh, today in the modern Orthodox or even some in some Haredi uh, uh, communities. They um, some of them wanted to change the pronunciation of the the to the Sephardic pronunciation, uh, a variety of things like this. And um, there was an individual. Don't know much about him. His name was Eliezer Lieberman. He was not a, I mean, he was a learned person. How learned it is hard to know, but he was learned enough to write a halachic work. He had a good Hebrew uh, ability. And uh, he was asked by the earlier reformers, can this be justified halachically? Because they wanted to be, at least, this, they wanted the synagogue to be halachic. And that's what's unique about the first generation of reform. They saw themselves as a halachic movement. By the second, third generation, uh, they had no interest in halacha. But the first generation, they wanted to be halachic. So Eliezer Lieberman begins sending, he wrote his book as well, Or No God's Called, uh, which set forth his position. But then he got rabbis from Europe, mostly from Italy, one from Hungary, a couple of Meshulachim from Israel, to answer questions of his Um about these reforms. Now, we don't know how many rabbis he asked. Presumably, he asked lots of rabbis, and they turned him down. But he was able to publish a book called Noga Hatzedek, which has mainstream rabbis, even Rabbi Aaron Chorin, who would later be a leading reform rabbi. Chassam Sofer referred to him as Acher. Uh, but um, at this time, he still was a traditional rabbi with reformist ideas, and he published a volume in which they defended. So, for instance, an organ in a synagogue. That found a defense in his volume. What's wrong with an organ in a synagogue if a non-Jew plays it? As Ramosha Kunitz, who was the Dayan in, Bud in Pesht, today we call it Budapest, uh, wrote, every single Shabbat, the non-Jew comes in and turns off the candles in the synagogue. And if it's, uh, you know, if the candles were to go out, the non-Jew would come in and light them. Well, if that's allowed, then why can't um, an organ be allowed, played by a non-Jew? And that will bring people to the synagogue so they can appreciate it. And after all, he said, and others pointed out, 
they used to have weddings Friday afternoon, which will continue into Shabbat, and non-Jews would play music. On, today, it's hard to imagine it, but non-Jews would play music at wedding meals on Shabbat because it's a sudas mitzvah, it's a, and uh, the non-Jew is uh, is playing it, uh, and he's told before Shabbat to do it. It's permissible. So um, that was the argument that was uh, made and uh, prayer in the vernacular. The people wanted to have prayer in German. Now, what could be wrong with prayer in German? All, all these authors wrote in this volume. After all, doesn't the Mishnah, doesn't the Ramam tell us explicitly prayer can be in any language? Um, and so these were the sorts of matters they wanted to change, to update. Nothing about moving the Sabbath to Sunday. Nothing about, you know, that kosher food is only for an earlier time uh, when they, they didn't know how to keep the food, uh, you know, at good temperatures. Nothing about the fact that a lot of these laws are only to keep us away from pagans. And today we live among dignified Christians and therefore they're not applicable. No, it was a halachic movement designed to modernize Judaism. I can't hear you. Oh, so I, we wanted to. I wanted to ask you, how was the response of the of the Orthodox rabbis at this time towards this um, new kind of kula seeking seeking kulot system of Eliezer Lieberman? So, like, what was like the 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 climate with within the Orthodox circle towards what was going on over there? Okay. Well, the first thing to note is that we we don't want to call them Orthodox yet. They only become orthodox sort of when there's a reform. Uh, they're the traditionalist <laughs> right. rabbis. Tradition. And the, the response the response was furious because the rabbis understood that um, much of this was about imitating the Christian practices. Uh, much of what they wanted to do was an imitation. Why do you want an organ? Because the Christians have it. And uh, look, you have to... <clears throat> the Rev. Soloveitchik once said... <clears throat> That uh, maybe if Ramosha Sofer, the Hatam Sofer, was not so uh, strident in his opposition, that uh, we could have stopped the reform movement. After all, what did they want? The, the, you know, many of the things they they, they didn't, were not so extreme. We could have compromised. But then Rabbi Soloveitchik said, "But you know what? If maybe if he wasn't so strident, uh, things would have become much worse." The rabbis, the the the, the leaders, the Gedoli Yisrael, we call them, understood that um, that for the um, the reform communities, these new communities that they would then call them reform, this was only the first step. And that this this wasn't all that they wanted, that uh, this was basically going to open the floodgates. And their assumption was, and I think it's correct, that the rabbis who replied, rabbis in Italy, one in Budapest, they didn't understand what was going on. They were answering this question just like it's a pure halachic question without knowing the, the context of what's going on in Germany and that you have communities of irreligious people and this is just like the opening step before they move in, for, which they did move further along. Uh, and uh, I think it's from Mordechai Benet, if I remember correctly, he says, look at these letters. Look at the the the, the letters in Nogat Zedek. You don't have any local rabbis. Why did um, Lieberman write to the people uh, in the other countries? Precisely because they didn't know the situation, and they would answer it uh, just as a pure halacha question. If you were living in Germany and you saw up close what was going on, you would have understood that this was just. You had to close the doors. We're not dealing. This isn't just a pure halacha question. This would open the floodgates to more and more. And uh, I think we have to say that the rabbis, this rabbinic expression, chacham adif that a, a wise person 
you know, as, as more insight, you could say, than a prophet. They, uh, Rav Moshe Sofer, Rav Mordechai Benet, and the others understood what was going on here, and uh, and they put a stop to it to a large extent. But it is ironic that so many of these reforms, if you read them today, we actually have them in our communities. But that's because we, we sort of fell into them organically. And uh, that it's very different. The Ramosha Sofer understood very clearly that uh, the kavana, the intention, is really determines many of these matters. In fact, he coined the phrase, what's new is forbidden from the Torah, because today you can't have novelty because it's so dangerous, because you have a whole group trying to tear down traditional Judaism. In earlier generations, or in the Sephardic world, for instance, this isn't a problem, because there isn't a reform movement. So perhaps uh, you could be more liberal. Um, Incidentally, if you go to Budapest today, the Dohani Synagogue, that's the big synagogue there of the the liberal Jews, they call them the Neolog. To this day, on Shabbat, they have an organ played by a non-Jew, and that's in line with the Psak of Ramosha Kunitz, the Dayan, the Dayan of Pesht. Wow. Wow. Something that um, I'm taking from what you've said um, is that the beginning of the first generation reform, essentially what you explained, um, came from actually from 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 the bottom up. It was from the people, right? The people wanted certain changes, and that that Correct. sprung into uh, what it became, um, for better or for worse, right? But what I'm taking from that is is that you know in general we, we tend to think that change can only come from leaders, but in reality, what what we can learn from that is that you know we as uh, members of the community, members of the Jewish people, as people, can create change if we, if we, if we, if we make, if we do it the right way. It's possible to make change. We, we're not absolutely leadership. In, in fact, in by the second and third generation reform, the rabbis were running the show when they were leading it. But in the early years, it was the people. They didn't have rabbis. They started their temp- synagogues. Uh, later, they called them temples. And uh, they were not happy with the main synagogue, and they wanted to uh, make changes. But of course, what you say is absolutely correct, and uh, uh, change can come from the people. It's it's always come from the people, sometimes consciously, but often unconsciously. That is, the people just develop in a certain way. And uh, the early reform movement, um, but it's a but the, the, what I'm speaking about is a one generation thing. Because uh, when the rabbis didn't go along with it, and uh, it became obvious that you couldn't create halachic reform synagogues, if you want to use the term reform, then uh, by the next generation, um, halacha is really jettisoned as uh, as a binding uh, principle. Leaders like Geiger and others, whole time, they have no interest in halacha. They come out of strict Orthodox backgrounds, but they believe that we're now in a new era, and uh, we don't need to go to the rabbis for to get their opinions. Okay, so on that note, since we're now segueing into the second generation reform, when and why did the second generation reform develop? You touched upon it a little bit now, but if yeah. maybe you should expand on that a little bit, right? And and um, how did it differ from the first? 
Okay, well, uh, no God said I could hear in 1818. Geiger's dates are 1810 to 1874. So by 1840, let's say 50, you have uh, a real strong uh, reform, reform movement of uh, some significance. What you have is uh, you have a group of individuals, like-minded individuals, who have been raised uh, traditionally. And uh, some were real Tamir Chachamim. Holdheim, Guy Geiger's a big Tamir Chacham. He was a... Uh, Chavrusa at the University of uh, with uh, University of Bonn with uh, with Hirsch, and uh, they together come to the conclusion that Judaism needs to be updated. And uh, you have some in this group who are radical, extremely radical, who uh, want to jettison the entire oral law. Basically, they're very much like Karaites that uh, you know they just. The, the Bible, that's all they want. And then there's others who are much more traditional, who see reform. They take the mantle of Pharisees, that we reformers are like the old Pharisees. We're the traditionalists. And you can't ask what the Pharisees said. You have to ask what they would say if they were around today. And uh, that's Geiger's position. That, uh, and you have many rabbis in towns. And you have to understand, you're in a small town, let's say, in Germany, and uh, the people, they just listen to what the rabbi says. And if the rabbi comes home one day and says that, uh, you know, now uh, the rabbis have decided you only need to keep one day of the Yom Tov, you know, well, not two days anymore. What do the people know? They'll they'll go along with it. That's right. why it was a very dangerous uh, situation. And um, uh, it took a while before it became clear that there were two camps here, the Orthodox camp and the Reform camp. Uh, because there was a lot, as I would say, false advertising. You know, they have rabbis in little towns. They can advertise uh, their positions. But uh, Geiger uh, was a well-known figure, and uh, he really is the most important. And the argument basically is that we are now at a different stage. By the mid, let's say, 19th century, the argument is we're at a different stage. We're living among civilized Gentiles. Many of the laws in the past were designed to keep us uh, separate from the non-Jews. These are not the type of non-Jews today that we no longer can believe what other people believe. That is, we can't believe in Torah Messinai tradition in a traditional sense. So if you if you have the argument that um, we can't believe in Torah the way it used to be believed in, so what's important? So monotheism is important, ethical monotheism, the idea that the Jews have a mission, that uh, we're, uh, we're a holy people because we spread morality. That So that becomes the stress as... Uh, Geiger himself, as I recall, said, you know, we're not inspired by the rule of an etrog anymore. You know, we, we're not jettisoning all of the Bible, but we're looking for what, what speaks to us. Not everything speaks to us. So it was a recreating of Judaism in line with modern sensibilities. So from an Orthodox perspective, this is terrible. This is the worst. They're destroying Torah. So you can understand why they attack them so uh, brutally and viciously and justifiably from a Lachic perspective. But if you take the broader view, you can actually be what we would say, remember, these are people who, although the Orthodox said to them, you're no different than the Christians. You want to get rid of Torah. You know, you're like Paul. The Saul of Tarsus, you're saying that, you know, we don't need uh, the law anymore. But these are people who could have abandoned Judaism. And all of, they still suffered as Jews. There was all sorts of disabilities on them in, in professions and in other areas. And yet they chose not to. They chose to remain Jewish. So they were proud to be Jewish. 
So from our perspective, I think we have to look at them and say, although, of course, uh, they were wrong in their views of halacha, but to see them as the Orthodox of the time saw them as simply um, wanting the easy way out and not caring about Judaism, really, you have to, it depends how you look at the glass half full, half empty. They suffered for their Judaism. It's not a Judaism that we recognize, but in their mind, it was Judaism. And um, and look, uh, at the end of the day, many of these Jews died, oh, Kiddush Hashem, because they remained Jewish. Had they converted to Christianity in the mid-19th century, 100 years later, they would have been regarded as Aryan because it would have been four or five generations. So we have to give some... Look, Rav Cook says that in every, even in every negative thing, there's sparks of holiness. So what's the spark of holiness in reform? Uh, I think this is a spark of holiness, that they still showed a connection they didn't want to give up that last spark of Judaism that they had. Something was keeping them in the community. It wasn't Torah the way we see it, but it was something. Yeah. So, th so they essentially wanted to kind of uh, focus on Judaism as an idea versus law, right? Essentially. Yes. The law, there's no no such thing as law anymore. There's only suggestions, I guess you could say. Right. If a practice gives you inspiration, then do it. So what's Shabbos? Shabbos to them is not the 39 malachot. It's not what you can't do. It's the idea of Sabbath, the spirit, the day of a family time of connecting to God. <laughs> so some people said, well, then we why don't we make it on Sunday? <laughs> then we could do the same thing. But uh, that was voted down. They had three major rabbinic uh, reform conferences where they voted on these matters. Circumcision. Some reform rabbis said it's barbaric, and others said, no, it's it ties us to the 3,000 years of Jewish history. And it's uh, so it's not a command. The, 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 the practices are never a command anymore from God. Rather, it's our way of connecting to God because they believe in God. But it's, these are creations of humans to try to connect to God. And we have to decide whether or not we still find meaning in them. You know what's interesting to me? You can We can make the same sort of criticism on the opposite direction towards orthodoxy in that orthodoxy is so hyper obsessed with halakha that they lose the force from the tree, the trees from the meaning they lose the the soul of the matter right because that, obviously right uh, that so, that point has been made by many it was made uh, very strongly by Rav Cook yes that uh, and but Heschel Heschel said that uh, orthodox Jews are not in awe of God they're in awe of the Shulchan Aruch right. I mean. Uh, and you that's that's a big problem when you're at you could be at a Pesach Seder and instead of focusing on you know this great redemption, the focus is on the the Shiurim, the Kazais, this and that. Uh, I mean, when I was in Yeshiva, I'll never forget this. Uh, they took us, um, I think it was Erev Shabbos or Shabbos, I can't remember, to the the, the Western Wall, and you, you can see Harabai. The halacha is you're supposed to do Kriya when you see that, and uh, for whatever reason today people don't do it. Uh, there's discussions as to why they don't. Uh, that's bottom up, by the way. The people don't do it, then the rabbis try to justify it. But the sources say you should. So our, we went on either Erev Shabbos, I forget, or right before Shabbos or Shabbos. But I remember that we were told we're going so we wouldn't have to do the Kriya. And even then, I was only 18. I remember thinking, this is like so wrong, so orthodox, if you want to put it. We're supposed to see Harabayit and be so, you know, moved by the the, the scene of the, the non-Jewish house, you know, the houses of worship, the shrine up there, that we're supposed to do Kriya. 
But instead, we try to find a trick to go at a time when we don't have to do it to spare our shirts. I mean, that would be an example of seeing the far losing this, the forest for the trees instead of, you know, and, and unfortunately, Orthodox Jews fall into that trap, what Heschel called halachocentrism. That, uh, look, Rav Soloveitchik said that halacha is not the ceiling, it's the floor. We have to follow halacha, of course, but that's not all there is. That's the basis. And then you have, if you you can be what the Ramban says in the Valber Torah, you can follow all the halachot exactly, and yet you're still a scoundrel because you lose sight that halacha, there's a telos, you know, it's trying to get you somewhere. So there's no question that the non Orthodox, the Reform, had a point. And they, they, there were many problems in the traditional world. Hirsch himself pointed out there were many problems. Hirsch was a reformer with a small R. And he, but he adopted the critique, he, or he uh, agreed with much of the critique of the reformers. What sense does it make to say you're not going to have sermons in the vernacular? What, uh, Yiddish is holy language or something now? Torah was given in Yiddish? Um, the people want music. So you have a choir. Hirsch has a choir. Hirsch started wearing gowns. What's the problem? I mean, uh, the other rabbi said uh, it's absolutely forbidden. But the people, they wanted it. They thought it was dignified. And if that's going to bring him to the synagogue, Hirsch thought that this, you're being, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face, that you're making stands on meaningless small things. You have to look for the bigger picture here. So uh, German neo-Orthodoxy, German Orthodoxy, which gets going through Hirsch, Hildesheimer, and others, they recognized the problems that the reform pointed to, but they offered a different solution, obviously. It's not abandoning halacha, it, but it's creating a new type of Judaism. And Geiger was very upset with Hirsch when Hirsch published his 19 letters, because Geiger, Geiger thought that he was going to be dealing just with uh, old-fashioned Judaism, which would remain a tiny segment. But here Hirsch comes along and says, no, you can be observant and you can have everything. You can go to the university and be a government worker. Geiger's whole point was that traditional Judaism is a pre-19th century form of Judaism. We, if you want to be a 19th century German Jew, you can only be a Reformed Jew. And the tr traditionalists agreed with Geiger. <laughs> they also agreed with Geiger that she writes, you can't go to the university if you want to be a traditional Jew. So what would that have left traditional Judaism with? A small little group. That's it. It's Hirsch who comes on the scene and says, those rabbis, the traditionalists, they're wrong. That we can, we can be part of this German society, but we don't have to give up Torah. So um, it's uh, you have to accept parts of the critique of the reformers because uh, the, the traditionalist rabbis were living in the 19th century just like they were living in the 18th and 17th and 16th century. And that led to disaster. In the year 1800, every large community was dominated by the traditional Jews. In two generations, every, every city was dominated by the reformed Jews. Hmm. This happened on the watch of the traditional rabbis. If they were football coaches, they all would have been fired. It happened on their watch. And Hirsch understood this. They allowed reform to grow. And Hirsch said, you know why they allowed reform to grow? Because they didn't understand Torah and Derech Eretz. Torah has to deal with every civilization and every era. And the response of Torah is going to be different. These rabbis, they were in uh, 18, 19th century Berlin, and they were acting like they were in uh, 17th century Vilna. You know, that's, you can't have a Judaism like that. And uh, and uh, so, yes, was Hirsch a reformer? Of course, reformer with a small R. But he understood something that the reformers also understood, that Judaism can't remain static. Is, isn't, isn't a lot of what you're expressing now kind of what modern orthodoxy is striving for? 
Exactly. You have, uh, it's not just modern orthodoxy, Haredim also are doing it, in, not the Haredim in Israel, Haredim in America. They're so acculturated. They're so, though, you go to the uh, the basketball game and there's a Glock kosher uh, hot dog stand there. Um, so what, you could fight, you could scream, you could say, this is terrible, my kids, uh, Super Bowl Sunday. So what do they do during the half? You, when I was young in yeshiva, the rabbis would get up and tell you not to watch it. It's terrible. Today, they don't say that. They say during the halftime, she'll call in. They have like a little shear for 20 minutes. So <laughs> that's what Turin Derek Heretz is. You recognize the reality. You're going to fight against things. You can't fight against it. This is the way of the world. So you have to deal with it. And that was uh, what Hirsch understood. He's not saying that uh, in Poland, they should wear a gown or that the, you should have a sermon. Remember, sermons come from the reform also. We never had sermons. We had drushas. But a sermon, the way we think of it, like a 10-minute talk, which is supposed to edify and give you inspiration, that comes out from the that comes from the Christians, the Protestants. And uh, then the reformers adopted. The people wanted it. It's hard to imagine that people wanted sermons. Today they don't like sermons, but they demanded sermons. They never had that. So that's a, it's a good idea. So uh, but Hirsch isn't saying that you should do this in Poland. You know that when Rivazria Hildesheimer came to Berlin. He, he observed that, no, sorry, now when Rishon Salanter came to Berlin, he saw Rishon Salanter teaching a class in, in Halakha to young women in Berlin. And he said, if he, if a rabbi in Russia ever tried to teach uh, women, you know, advanced Halakha, like, or I shouldn't say advanced, just Halakha, um, they'd throw him out, and for good reason. He said, but I wish that my share in Olam Haba will be Israel Hildesheimer. Because every community is different. And you mentioned modern orthodoxy. Hirsch, Hildesheimer, this is a form of modern orthodoxy. It's a recognition of the issues, of the problems, but giving a different solution. Look, girls are being educated. So what are you going to do? You have to give that you have to have a reform. You have to teach girls then. If they're getting educated secularly, you have to educate them Torah as well. So uh, the reform movement had a correct diagnosis of many of the problems, but there's a solution was uh, was the incorrect uh, approach. They went wayward. The solution went wayward. Because they assumed that by definition, since they, they confused, I would say, the out, the shell with the kernel. Yes, there's a shell. The way that Jews, they said you couldn't get, uh, you had to work, let's say, as, as a merchant. You couldn't have what we would call today white-collar professions, because that would mean you have to go to the university. We can't go to the university. We, they said you can't make any changes in the synagogue. You, you can't have the sermons in the vernacular. You can't have sermons at all. You can't have music or people, you know, all the things. By the, and again, it wasn't singing along, but listening to a cantor, all these things, because we can't have any changes. Uh, and then the reform pointed this out. But then they threw out, not only did they make this change, they threw out halacha. They threw out divine nature of Torah, when really all you had to do was modify the external. And that's what Hirsch's whole point was. He said you may need to distinguish between the kernel, the Torah, which is eternal, and the outer form, which is different. Obviously, it's different in every society. That's what Torah and Derech Eretz means. Torah with whatever Derech Eretz there is. And uh, so Reform took the Derech Eretz and they created their own Torah, whereas Hirsch kept the Torah and since the Derek Eretz has changed, he, uh, you know, the outer form of it changed. The, I guess if you want to speak, speak like an Aristotelian, you have matter and form. The matter remains the same, the form changes. But for the reformers, not only the form changed, but the matter was changed. There wasn't any uh, basis of Torah anymore. Very, very excellent points. Uh, there's a lot there yeah. to unpack. Um, one of the things that um, I think is a tragedy it's the reaction to the reform movement, for example, them championing 
um, like you mentioned, Tanakh, just like the Karaites, um, it kind of led to a response by the Orthodox or the traditionalists later to to just champion Talmud study and halakha, like you said. And I, till this day, I feel like this is really one part that's just lacking in in, in the Orthodox yeah. world. Majorly. Well, it's the Ashkenazic Orthodox world, not the Sephardic Orthodox world. It actually wasn't a response to the reformers. That's a response to the Haskalah, the Maskilim, that begin in Germany. And of course, in Germany, the Maskilim and the reformers, they intersect. But uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, you don't really have reformers. Uh, and the reformers you have are really halachic, uh, completely halachic. You don't have, they just, uh, you try not correct to call them re reformers. They're liberals, let's say. But uh, because the Maskilim, they also wanted a broad, they, they had a good diagnosis also. The diagnosis was that uh, we have to, you know, have some breath. Not everyone can function, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, either go to yeshiva or something. They wanted to, Judaism is broader. The Sephardic world never would have had this problem because the Sephardic world recognized. You have the great poets in in uh, Spain, you have the philosophers, all these things. But Ashkenazi Judaism has always been Talmudic centric. And then when the Musk, but there never was a problem reading Tanakh, but that wasn't something most people did if you're a Tamachachon. But then when the Maskilim started championing this, then you start having a, a trend against it. You're not even, for Shomo Kluger, great, great authority from Glitzia says you can't even teach kids Tanakh. And the old joke, which isn't just a joke, how do you know a verse from Tanakh? You know it from uh, the, um, the Talmud, the page it's on. But this trend actually goes back even to medieval times. The Tosfot already talks about how we don't need to study Tanakh because, uh, you know, everything, we got everything in the Talmud. And Hirsch criticizes this in his uh, 19 letters. That's a mistake. But it reached extreme proportions because the early opinions were never saying that there's a problem learning Tanakh. They're just saying you don't need to. By the time we get to the 19th century, if you're in a Beit Midrash and you're sitting there reading, let's say, Sefer Yechesko or Sefer Daniel, they're going to assume that you're not a traditional Jew, that you're some masculine, because that's not what we do. And that's a complete distortion, obviously. And it's, you know, often backlashes lead to extreme positions. And eventually you find your way to the middle ground. But it, it it hurt traditional Judaism a good deal, and it did not allow traditional Judaism to respond, I think, creatively to challenges in the 20th century with the rise of the state of Israel and a uh, return to biblical, you know, sites that um, and uh, how to relate to this. And uh, fortunately, in the religious Zionist world, there now is a renewed emphasis on Tanakh, Machon Herzog, and much going on. Great stuff. But um, you're absolutely correct that the the response led to uh, also well, you had that response to the reformers. I don't know if you know this, that in Hungary, the response to the reformers was so extreme that they made all sorts of resolutions. So for instance, you couldn't have a wedding in a synagogue. In Hungary, this was banned because uh, the reformers did it. Uh, you could not have a choir. You could not have sermons in the vernacular. This is, um, it's a common theme and it's an understandable. Uh, things that would be permissible when they're advocated by the other side, then they became very, very problematic. Uh, and um, it takes a while to reach equilibrium. Fascinating. So we touched on the different sects that splintered off. Besides, you know, orthodoxy, modern orthodoxy, modern orthodoxy, conservative, reform, reconstructionist. We have many subgroups that have splintered off these primary sects. Um, sticking to the main branches of Jewish sectarianism today, what would you personally suggest and hope should be done with these issues that we have today? 
Well, you know, it's hard to know who's a sectarian or not, because to the people to the right often see the people to the left as a sectarian. Uh, um, and even just in the wider Orthodox world, uh, you probably are aware of how many uh, leading Orthodox figures have pointed to Yeshiva Shodavei Torah as open Orthodox, as sort of like a sectarian type of reformist movement. So uh, my attitude is that, uh, look, we have to recognize reality here, that uh, we have all these different types of Judaism. You mentioned them. You didn't mention renewal. (laughs) That's another one. Now, these are all people who, um, in in our era of of, of secularism, of uh, post-religion, in much of the world, you have people who want to be Jewish. And that's already a glass half full. And uh, so um, what do you do with these people? Do you throw them out? Do you reject them? You don't want them? Uh, Obviously, uh, there's real difficulties that the Orthodox side has with the others. There's even an aspect which you didn't mention, that when you deal with the reform movement, for instance, conservative movement to a lesser extent, but also significant, many of the members are not even halakhically Jewish. So that raises its own problems because of patrilineal descent or conversions that we don't recognize. But let's leaving that aside, I have thoughts about what to do with that as well. But leaving that aside, at the end of the day, um, we can go back to something that Siv said, not to see who to Berlin. He said that among each other, we fight. Obviously, we fight about matters because they're important to us. So if they're not, you don't fight about things if they're not important to you. If, if we all got along and no one had any disputes, it would mean that we don't take it seriously. However, when it comes to the outside world, the Nitziv said this, and he was referring to all types of Jews, just like we have today. Uh, you join together because you need to distinguish. Rav Soloveitchik also elaborates on this. This is what we call kapi chutz upinim, that uh, we all still are people. The reformers, the completely irreligious, we see yeah. this right now in Israel. Uh, you know, when, when we deal with the enemies, we're all one people. So I think, and, and I think we're in an era where everyone can recognize that the era of polemics, of criticizing the other, of trying to tear them down, uh, it's past. It doesn't accomplish anything. What's the point of a polemic against the reformers? You're not going to convince anyone. Uh, right. This was all done 100 years ago. Well, I think we need to recognize and that uh, and treat everyone with respect. They have a different opinion. We think it's incorrect, but they think that we're incorrect. And uh, um, that way we can uh, coexist. And we want to coexist. We don't want to live like Satmar or living in some shtetl. We want to be part of the larger Jewish people. Because uh, even before you had the reform movement, we still had prayers saying, uh, you know, Rosh Hashanah, Isi Ashkenazim, or Yom Kippur, you know, that we're going to pray with the sinners. We've always had sinners. So we have more sinners today. Uh, most of the Jewish community is sinners, but we're sinners also. We're just sinners in different ways. We're all sinners. Maybe we're better in certain areas, but some of these Reformed Jews, I don't call them non-religious. Some of them are very religious. They're not halachic, so they're misguided. Uh, but they're, they're all, we're all one people. And uh, look, in the Sephardic world that you come from, you never had the reform move. You never had movements, denominations, but you always had different levels of religiosity. And uh, um, you always were able to be a, a large tent. The Ashkenazim, unfortunately, have denominations. It's our curse. It has a lot to but, do with uh, just living in Christian countries, you know, the, the influence of that. Um, you know, there's countless sects of Christianity, and I think that there you just naturally model after that, you know. Well, also, I think they were living in eras where secular society was very sophisticated, right? And the people went to universities that opened up all sorts of possibilities. But at the end of the day, you ask what to do with all these uh, different sects. I say, don't do anything with them. 
we have we battle in the battle in the, the square of public ideas and uh i think we have a good product and uh uh i think uh unfortunately many of these groups are disappearing and it's not a good thing i don't think we should be happy about it through intermarriage through assimilation uh lack of caring but as long as we have other types of jews i think we should treasure them for what uh, we are we're a people yeah, I agree. And as Sephardi Jews, you know, we always grew up with that. You know, you have the guy next to you who drives a shul on Shabbat and the other guy next to you wears a black hat, um, who's a chassid even. Um, and you don't really see, other than Chabad, you don't really see um, any any groups interacting with the other. I think that what we what I actually want to advocate for and what we're trying to do on the podcast as well is to, you know, humanize these other groups, like they are part of our, like you mentioned, they're part of our nation. And now post-war, post-October 7th Judaism, we kind of have to, you know, wake up a little bit and kind of change our attitude. Um, it doesn't mean we have to, like you said, accept their beliefs, but it's very rare to find, you know, a modern Orthodox rabbi invited to speak in a Haredi shul, but you'll have a, a modern Orthodox uh, shul bring a Haredi rabbi to speak in. And I actually... <laughs> would like to see a conversation like i don't know if you know rabbi mark golub you know one of the best jewish interviewers i think he's reform even and uh, he he would interview everyone from from rabbi mark angel to rabbi Sachs to uh Mary Kahana, i mean the who's who and from completely different uh, areas and i think that was to me that was very nice to see because you know not often i get to hear a conversation between a reform rabbi and an orthodox rabbi they're not going to persuade us in one way, one way or another, but having a conversation could only benefit the society as a whole. I, I think that's what now, you said. You said a lot of important things. I'll just add one thing as well. You didn't mention, but you talk about Sephardic communities. Uh, look at the Ashkenazic world. You know how many cherims, cherim against this and that, yeah. other than Spinoza. And maybe in Syria, you had a cherim uh, in Aleppo against, uh, there's, a, there's an, an, a period. But other than that, the, 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 you know, you don't have that in the Sephardic world. Um, the issue with the Haredim is a difficult one because at the end of the day, uh, although it would be very nice for them to invite the modern Orthodox rabbis, they fundamentally don't accept the legitimacy of the modern Orthodox approach. And uh, their whole lifestyle and way of thinking is that um, is is not like the modern Orthodox. The modern Orthodox uh, I did classes on the Satma Rebbe. We want to understand everyone. It doesn't mean we agree with them, but they don't believe in a public setting of giving legitimacy to people who are uh, religious leaders who don't share their hashkafa. So I don't really know how you uh, break that down. The, the idea of a debate, we would love to have a debate. You get people together, but they don't believe in that. Uh, it's just a different philosophy, and I don't know how you can change that. So you're never going to get... Yeah. It's a common theme, you know, every year when I was growing up, the Lakewood Yeshiva would come to my town, there'd be a breakfast for them and raise money for uh, the some school in Lakewood. But they would never do the same in Lakewood for one of our schools. That That's that's just the way it is. And you have to, so if you don't want to give any money to one of these institutions in Lakewood saying, because it's there's no reciprocity, okay, that's one approach. Or you can sort of, I guess, be a bigger person and say that you can recognize that other institutions, even to the right, if you still have value, even while acknowledging that they will not see the same about your institutions, the way, uh, at least not the same to raise money. They might think that they have value to prevent you know, uh, us from assimilating, that sort of thing. That's just the reality. And uh, I guess that's the definition of being a liberal. In this sense, I think we should all be liberal, that we can have 
tolerance for those who are not as tolerant to us. That's at least the path I've chosen to lead my life. Uh, and I think modern orthodox is probably the the path that allows for that in a way because we we do, for example, respect the Haredi leadership and we the the Beit Din and so on. Sure, Shivim Pani Matora. Modern orthodoxy believes there's different paths. The Haredi world, the big problem is that they forgot the net. And uh, although there's different paths in the Haredi world, but it seems that each Haredi seems to have that this is the Das Torah. That's uh, and that's a problem. Look, uh, there's much we could criticize about uh, the Haredi world, but uh, we also have to acknowledge all the positives, just like there's much you can criticize about the modern Orthodox world. There's some stuff in the Haredi world which is outstanding, absolutely outstanding, which the modern Orthodox world uh, doesn't even get close to that. On the other hand, there's much that we can criticize uh in the Haredi world. So no no side is perfect, and uh, Haredi rabbis recognize this, and privately, they will uh, talk about this to you. They talk about it to me all the time. It's just, it's hard in a public setting for them to do that, and uh, so you have to accept that. That's just their their approach. They have a different approach. Like we were talking about in the beginning. I was just thinking that. People are, um, you know, they, they call the shots, usually how it works. Actually, we did a podcast um, with, this is reminding me of that interview we did with uh, Rev. Alex Gutman, yeah. and we were discussing, you know, the the voodoo, we called it voodoo Judaism, but a lot of stuff that just starts to kind of appear within Orthodox circles, which is like Schlissel Chala and all these strange practices, but yeah. the rabbis really, they, they kind of have to like accept these things because they just creep in and then everyone starts doing it and then becomes very popular and it's just hard to stop it and yeah. the conclusion of that conversation was that it's not going to come from the rabbis these kind of these things have to be stopped well what you're saying it seems to be what's going on in israel now well uh, there seems to be you look every time you have a war like a big event like this we don't know how society changes afterwards and uh you have now thousands of haredim and i'm told these are not like the losers the ones hanging out in ben yehuda the shababnikim that these are real yeshiva students who have entered the army you're having lots of people in the army and Haredi society looking around and seeing that uh, you know our mothers are going to sleep at fine. Our life continues as normal, and yet funerals are going on every day. Someone I know, his son-in-law was killed to just today, and I watched the funeral. This is going, it could touch to the core, Haredi society, and there are rabbis, there are young people, Rabbi Shua Pfeffer and others, if you haven't interviewed him, he's certainly a good interview, um, a leading Haredi thinker there from the younger generation, arguing that we need to make a change. Ooh. So if the, the if the people make, and you know, by the way, this is oh, a problem in Haredi society, because the leadership, yeah, the leadership in Haredi society, you hear me? Yeah, yeah, what was his name? You said- The name of that- Yeshua Pfeffer, P-F-E-F-F-A-R. He has a magazine and is, uh, they call him Haredi Light, but I mean, this is- this seems to be the direction that much of the Haredi community, certainly American-style Haredim as well, live in Israel. But you know that something's a brew. How do you know that? Because we've had all sorts of extreme, crazy statements by Haredi Russia yeshiva leaders in the last few weeks. How you, yeshiva students should not have anything to do with the army. You shouldn't go to funerals. You shouldn't even visit sold, injured soldiers. You know, extreme crazy stuff. They see that the ground is shifting and they're trying to keep the ghetto walls up there and trying to. So that's a sign that, um, and that, that things that. are changing. And what's going to happen is that the people on the ground will change it. You're never going to have a complete change, there'll be different communities, but you're going to have, I think, the development of a different style Haredim 
we'll call them Haredi Humuwerk or Haredi Sionim, whatever you want to call them, people who want to be part down. of the society, and the rabbis will emerge because the communities will appoint the rabbis. And we've seen this again and again. We've seen this with the Hasidic movement. We've seen this with the religious Zionist movement. You think religious Zionists had, uh, you know, they had to find rabbis also for many of their communities. We've seen it with, uh, also, we've seen it again and again. And uh, you, this is just one the anti-Zionism, the anti-Zionism of a lot of those communities is also going to, I mean, obviously. The communities are not anti-Zionist. They all, the people. Forget what the rabbis say. The rabbis speak a language sometimes. Those are the people. The typical Haredi in Israel feels connected to the state of Israel. It's his country. It's his. He, he can. He connects to it, and um, so they Not practically so here, they already I mean, are. Zionism. What does Zionism mean? Zionism is ideology to create a state. The state's already there. So what do you mean Zionism? Everyone who lives there is connected to the state. The issue isn't Zionism. Yes, the Haredim have problems with symbols of the state, you know, Hatikva, things like that. But uh, practically, you know, they they live many of them as uh, with with the exception of going to the army, which is the big one. They live as part. They they feel connected to the uh, the state of Israel. Look, yep. they know that. Uh, what anti-Zionism? You get someone in America, some politician, a, a Talib or something, an anti-Zionist. They know it's anti-Semitism. They, they. Um, so there's going to be changes, reforms with a small R. Remember the reforms of Hirsch, the firms we talk about. You have to distinguish between reforms with a small R and reforms with a large R. We've always had reforms in Judaism. Yeah, we, we kind of have this discussion. We've had this debate. Yeah, because I also have relatives in Israel, some who are not religious, who used to be Haredi, let's say, and went off the derech or whatever it is. And they're like saying the opposite. No, it's not. Nothing's changing. We spoke to last a uh, few days ago. We spoke to Rabbi Slifkin, and he was saying the the changes are it's it's so minute and it's so small. He was kind of downplaying it. I kind of believe that myself, but and I'm I, hoping that he's and wrong. I'm the I'm positive. Hoping, yeah, I'm it, the positive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen, I don't know. I don't live there. I can just tell you what I'm reading, what I'm hearing. They're saying that. Uh, and we don't know. None of us knows. Is everything going to go back to normal like it was before October 7th? Uh, mm -hmm. It's hard to imagine that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Jews are being buried every single day. And the Haredi world has to look at this. They, there has to be a cheshbon nefesh, as we say, uh, a reckoning of how... Again, it's not just the army. Um, if you live in a Haredi settlement, and there are in the West Bank, uh, you have some settlements... You don't. You have. You don't guard, do your own guard duty. I had a person on one of my tours in the summer was complaining that Pesach night his son couldn't be at Seder because he was at one of these Haredi places. He was guarding them. Why can't they guard themselves? This idea that they can't carry a gun. You know that that, that they're not. Well, where do they get this thing from? I think they're going to have to step up, especially with their you know, population, and. Um, I don't know if it necessarily means in the army for men, most of them, but national service. There has to be something. There, ha there has to be some involvement more. And I think most of them are going to recognize this, or many of them are. Look, we could be wrong. It could go back the way it was before. But I don't think uh, it's go back. What I think is very, very interesting, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but this is just the general feeling I have. I feel like this, the times we're in right now, like a figure like Rabbi Sachs is sorely missing. Because I feel like there's no like voice coming from the rabbis that that is just like inspiring. I'm not talking about just Shirim. Like all you hear is like the Gogu Magog Shirim, and then or you hear the uh, you know you hear the the, the ultra Haredi approach, or you hear you know things talking rabbis talking about politics, but inspirational kind of messages, and also 
kind of paving the way for a post October 7th Judaism. I don't hear those conversations. I feel like there's a big lack. And actually, I, I'm noticing that the people are actually the ones like, for example, today. And that's what counts. I, yeah. And I'm listening, you know, I'm, I find myself listening to a lot of, you know, people who are, let's say, for example, uh, comedians, Jewish comedians, like Ami Kozak. I, I find myself listening to him more than I do to certain rabbis, or I listen to, you know, some influencer. Um, and the people are speaking up. And like, it's almost, it's interesting because in the world we're living in today, the people are becoming the brands in a way, and they have a lot of influence and, and it's no longer just the rabbi who has a voice. It's very interesting what's happening. Yeah, but I, there are some, and some will emerge. I don't know if you listen ever to Mayor Soloveitchik, yes, who yes. certainly pre presents a very, uh, he's a public intellectual, maybe the leading, uh, certainly the leading rabbi public intellectual and one of the leading Jewish public intellectuals. But we have uh, we have many columnists and other speakers. It's 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 it's, it's a wider range, obviously. Yeah, I don't and, want to say uh, all of them. Obviously, we have we have our own personal rabbi, Rabbi Maruf, uh, who's yeah. phenomenal. You know, he's just he's really um, he's so understanding of, uh, he's so sensitive to the times that we're in, and also Rabbi Yonatan Halevi is somebody who who we really have. Yeah, there's a, look, you're, you're comparing Rabbi Sachs. This is a once in a. Uh, yeah, you know, maybe in a century type of figure. Uh, you've had a lot of chief rabbis in England. Uh, no one was like him. He was the he was the rabbi not just to the Jews in England, to the non-Jews. I mean, he was a, a moral spokesman, someone who could... We, we miss his voice right now. Oh, do we miss his voice to speak I, I to the world say... about the, the morality of what's happening and the immorality of of uh, the progressive uh, outlook. Uh, we really miss his voice on the world stage. Yeah, okay. and I think what we're can gonna you do? We're a bereft generation. We're gonna we're gonna appreciate. I think people will appreciate Rabbi Sachs in the century from now. I think he's just one of. He's gonna be one of. He's just so underrated right now. Um, but I'm well, you, he people will books. read him. People will read him in a century from now. Most so that's uh, most rabbis will not be read, but he's one. Exactly. He had an enormous impact. And uh, look, I knew him personally. So, uh, but. Uh, yeah, these are great figures. What was that? What was that experience like? I always love to hear a good Rabbi Sachs story. Well, I'll tell you a good Rabbi Sachs story. I told it in uh, in my uh, class as well, though. That um, um, so I came to England to speak actually at his uh, no, not a show right near where he was living. So he asked me to come see him. Uh, we had corresponded before that, but that was the first time I met him, and. Um, he would talk a lot. He didn't listen so much. He talked, but uh, so he said to me, uh, he like first he began by saying I he he reviewed my book on Rabbi Weinberg. He he read all my stuff. He liked it very much. He even read my blog post, the Swarim blog, which really gets into the weeds. He said to me, but now it's time for me to. Um, he said he said to me, I didn't ask him, but he told me. He says, I want you to start writing for the Wall Street Journal. I want you to start writing for the New York Times. I want you to bring your vision to the wider world. In other words, he was telling me that I should be like him. So on the one hand, it's a big compliment. He thinks that I have something to say to the world that I should start writing. Like basically like Mayor Soloveitchik, who's writing for the Wall Street Journal every few months. The truth, but I said to Rabbi Sachs, the truth is that uh, that's not my interest. I'd rather write a blog post about some obscure rabbi from 20 years ago that maybe a thousand people find interesting than write a piece. My daughter actually has had a few pieces in the Wall Street Journal 
so she gets a hundred thousand, you know, readers, not me, but what can you do? That's not my interest. But he stressed the point. He thought that uh, there's a need for Jewish spokesmen on the wider, in the wider world for the, the world at large. And he thought that I had the talent, the ability, whatever. I might have the talent, I might not, but I certainly don't have the desire. So I had to disappoint Rabbi Sachs. And uh, I submitted one article after that, maybe because he inspired me in the Washington Journal, turn it down. So I said, enough with that. I'm going back to the things I do best. And, um, but that I thought was interesting because you saw, and I'm sure Rabbi Sachs said the same thing to many. Uh, I was significantly younger then, probably 15 years ago. I'm sure he said the same thing to a number of younger people that uh, it's important for us to carry on, you know, because he believed, like Hirsch did, that Judaism is not just for the Jews, that we have something to say to the world. We're a universal religion. We have universal values and an outlook. And uh, he didn't want to be the only person uh, out there. So um, yeah. that's that was my that's my Rabbi Jonathan Sachs uh, story that I like to repeat. The things that he was saying also just a few years ago about the mutating virus of anti-Semitism, it's relevant. so relevant today. It's just like he's it's almost prophetic. The stuff he was saying. He has a great talk. Yes, he saw he saw before many others the the, the dangers of multiculturalism. And uh, the high uh, the, the the division into the, that uh, the you know the Jew is the oppressor, and that the the so-called liberation means liberation from um, the Jew as well. Uh, the twisting of the right becomes wrong. He saw that before it became obvious to everyone else. Amazing. And before we go, and this has been an amazing conversation. Um, we wanted to um, get, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your interactions with Chacham Faur. He's also someone who's important to us in the podcast. We we have a lot of affinity for, for Chacham Faur. And, we, and you mentioned to us before we came on that you had a certain relationship with him. We just wanted to know if you can say a few words on that. Sure. My, my relationship was almost exclusively via email. Uh, I, uh, I wrote a piece a little booklet on Shaul Lieberman, Shaul Lieberman the Orthodox. And at the end of it, I dealt with the controversy with Rabbi Faur in his community, which was very similar to what I wrote about Lieberman. Namely, he was teaching at the JTS and Jewish Theological Seminary. And uh, some of the more right-wing rabbis uh, thought that that would have, that possibly him, made him pasul to teach in the Syrian community. So that was a bit of a, a controversy in the Syrian world. And I touched on it. And later I published more documents on this matter. And throughout that, I then I was in communication with Rabbi Faur, just discussing these matters. And then he invited me to come visit him. He would spend the summers down at the Jersey Shore, uh, Oakhurst, Elberon, one of those towns. So we spent the entire morning together. And that's where I could say I, I got it from the horse's mouth, as it were, about his life, his time in Lakewood, his outlook, his experiences. He was such a special, interesting person. I don't share a number of his views. I actually think that uh, some of his judgments of the Ashkenazic sages are a little bit uh, askewed, but uh, he was such a unique individual, and uh, I learned so much from him, his writings, and uh, what can I say? A great loss. So these are giants, these people, and we don't appreciate them sometimes uh, when they're here. Uh, and we miss them, though, and we see what we miss when they're not here. And uh, I think I have more stuff. Uh, I think I have, uh, yes, I have another document I haven't yet published relating to the Fatwa controversy. Uh, um, Rabbi um, 
Chachamatlu Babadi. He was a businessman, but he was a huge Talmud Chacham, one of the leading rabbinic figures in the Syrian community. He was one of the big backers of Faor. In fact, Faor took him to meet uh, Shaul Lieberman, who was, I guess, Faor's other Rebbe, if you want to call him that. And uh, one thing I confirm with Faor, you might be interested, he was such a close student to Ravaran Cutler. He was he learned in Lakewood, and uh, he writes about it, actually. He, um Ravaron even came and when Rabbi Faur opened the yeshiva, he was a young man. He was in his late twenties. He opened the yeshiva in Flatbush. Ravaron Cutler in the late fifties came and spoke there. But when Ravaron died, they asked Faur to be one of the people to carry the coffin. They heard that from someone, and I didn't know if it was true. And I asked Faur, and he said yes, he was one of the people that carried it. So that just shows you uh, um, how respected he was then in the um, in the Litvisha world. However, later on, look, he went to the seminary to make a living, make a parnoso. Like, uh, the seminary has always been full with Orthodox uh, individuals. And uh, there were people for either, I don't want to get into the politics, so whether it was for, you know, look, he, Fowler would have shirim and the place would be mobbed. Everyone would come hear him. So from his side, this was all about jealousy. You know, here is Rabbi Faur. He's the most popular teacher, and uh, the other rabbis uh, are not as popular. So that, on the other side, the other rabbis, uh, the, the side of the other rabbis was that, uh, despite his brilliance, he was teaching at a non-orthodox institution. And therefore, we can't have that in our communities. Even if he's personally observant, we can't have uh, someone like that teaching for us. So uh, it became a bit of a a balagan uh, in, for him, and he suffered on account of this, definitely. Uh, and it was unfortunate. And I have letters, private letters, back and forth between him and his opponents, which shows the bad blood, and it's it's really unfortunate. And uh, what can you do, though? Yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate. And, uh, you know, sometimes you could just look at somebody who's like opposed like that for really a silly reason. Um, you realize that maybe it's a badge of honor, you know, that that they kind of excommunicated him because he 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 was a very important person and his writings are unbelievable and they're unbelievable. so there's it's just so it saddens me that you know people don't have knowledge about his books and you know we especially at you know we're not we weren't connected to him directly but we have indirect connections to him um through people in our community Rabbi Bitton and his family um and I really, really hope that, you know, with your help, with your articles and everything that you write, that he will, you know, get his uh, his due. Yep. Okay, but I do have to say that, and I, I, didn't, I had too much covered, so I could, didn't say it to him. I do think that there are certain problems in things he writes. For example, his whole notion, I mean, he, by very interesting, he rejects the whole idea that uh, Averroism, philosophy, led to uh, the conversions in Spain, which I, I think that's a difficult position, but... What I would have said to him, but I, I had too much covered is, I think he speaks disrespectfully. He has an article about certain nationalized rabbis. So, for instance, he has an article there called Anti-Maimonidean Demons. Yes. We've read it. And here he's speaking about, he's not even speaking about Ashkenazi, he's speaking about the Ramban. And he speaks Very about the Rush. The Rush is an Ashkenazi. Look, we can't, <laughs> he's a great man. And sometimes people who are great people, they, uh, they, they call it the Ritka Doraita. When they get involved in things, they... Um, at the end of the day, though, he's not living in medieval times. You can't speak about the Rosh, or Rosh ben Yechiel this way, and you can't speak about Nachmanides this way. So I feel that he went overboard sometimes in his, and I think it's, 
I think it's unfortunate because it casts a pull over some of his writings and some people who would benefit and would learn a lot because they might see some of these things they might not want to look at it. Yeah. yeah, and that's, look, everyone, uh, I've, I've written things that I regret. I shouldn't have phrased it a certain way. Um, so it's it's a, it's a big problem, though, because uh, if these people should recognize that uh, there's so much there, and look, if everyone you read, every writer, there's going to be things that, does, so there, yes, there are things in Fa'or I would have told him if I was his editor, put it a little differently, but, uh, and I do think he, uh, his, you know, his view of the Ashkenazi, we're not all, you know, the, I think uh, it, all the good is not found among the Sephardim. Let's put it that way. Uh, uh, but uh, look, I it was a great admirer of Fowler, hundred percent. But you know, he wasn't a Rebbe, and he didn't he didn't want Hasidim. If, uh, he, I told him that certain things I disagreed with him uh, when I met him that time. He didn't want you just to follow him. Uh, that's that's a Rebbe. He uh, he wanted you to look at his writings, and if you disagreed with him, you know, dispute him in print, and he would respond back and. Uh, uh, but where do you find someone who's an expert in the Talmud, in the Rambam, in all the Shehos and Shubos of the Sephardi rabbis from Salonika, from Syria, from Iraq, and oh. also can write about Derrida and Levinas and uh, modern philosophy? I mean, the breadth of, and, and uh, I mean, the breadth is unbelievable. Uh, that's all I can say. Very, very well said. This has been incredible. I, I hope that we can have you on again. Um there's so many things that I'm thinking as now that we've gotten to know you more, I have a lot of thoughts of things that we could do in the future. Uh, we'll see, but uh, we want to really thank you. Um, great conversation. Thank you for your contribution coming to our humble podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So okay, much. Well, I thank you for having me. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize I sort of, uh, I sort of started waxing on not with my views, but uh, you were sitting there <laughs> listening. So I will. So if it's of int maybe if it's of interest, not just to you, to, to other people, then I'm happy to do it. But um, we say in the Ashkenazic world, in my humble opinion, not all that I said, at least the second half of the talk. <laughs> okay. Thank you for having me. And that's thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys. Before we go, we want to thank our Patreon supporters by name. Those are the supporters that are helping make this show happen because, frankly, Bensi and I are full-time workers who don't really have so much time on our hands because we have families, we have kids, and it's just a passion project that got way bigger than we expected. So we're dedicating more time to this, and obviously our production value up until this point hasn't been great, considering that we filmed this in Bensi's basement using a green screen and a crappy little microphone and not such great equipment to be honest i'm sure you all realize that so we are hoping to up our quality and get better equipment 
And part of that process is going to be due to you guys, the listeners and supporters. If you go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Judaism, you will see all the different tiers of ways you can help us out. So first of all, we want to thank our super patron, Jordan Carmilli, our platinum patron, Craig Gordon, our gold patrons, David Chay Abramchayev, Laser Cohen, Travis Kruger, Vasily Valkov, silver patrons, Ellen Fleischer, Daniel Maksumov, Rabbi Penny Rosenthal, and Jeffrey Wasserman. Thank you all for supporting the show, and we hope you guys enjoy. Enjoy.